Welcome to the Italian Renaissance Podcast, where we discuss essential topics about the art and culture of 15th and 16th century Italy. I'm your host, Lawrence Cianangeli. Andiamo avanti. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of the Italian Renaissance Podcast. I have to admit, this is a working title, and um, I'm relatively new to the podcasting scene, and I think as this develops, how we we see the podcast, whatever direction it'll move in, we'll have a better working title. As of now, what I hope for this to be is a resource for people, um, not just students to, to use as maybe study guides or reference um, in their coursework on the, the Italian Renaissance or in art history or in general studies of, of Italy or of Europe, but also to be just an enjoyable way for a general audience to approach themes and topics of the Renaissance um, and, and how the field is moving today. Now, um, I guess I can start with a, a brief introduction of who I am, what my credentials are to tell you all this information, and, um, and what my primary interests and concerns are with the podcast. So my name is Lawrence. I did all of my undergraduate studies in French and Italian language and culture at the Florida State University, where I was fortunate enough to, to take my studies to Florence, Italy, and um, return time and time again, either working or as an independent scholar or as as a, a student affiliated through the university, and really spend a great deal of, of my, my education uh, among the art, among the, the architecture, in the presence and in the streets of the people who, who developed what we know as the Renaissance today. It was very formative and very essential, but, but also extremely enlightening and overall fun. Studying the Renaissance is a fun thing for me and for anyone who would search a podcast like this. So I think um, I'd like to welcome you all to, to enjoying this with me. After, after undergraduate studies, I moved on to graduate studies at Ohio State University, where I've recently graduated with a, a master's degree in Italian studies, uh, where all of my research was on Renaissance art literature and history. So I'm, I'm fresh in the field and I'm currently pursuing uh, additional graduate work in specifically art history, where I, I hope to be developing myself as an art educator right, and researcher and, and to develop new and exciting concepts of how we understand the Renaissance in Italy. Okay, that's, that's a bit about me and why you can hopefully trust what I'm saying. In addition to the sources, I'll provide for you to, to, to flag down these important works of the Renaissance for you to develop your own historical concept of them, which we'll talk about historical interpretation too. So what is the Renaissance? What does Renaissance mean? How do we define the Renaissance? That is a question very difficult to answer, frankly. History is an interpretive act. That is the foremost important thing I want to communicate here. So the podcast is going to be my interpretation of history as it is given to us. So roughly, scholars, historians date the Renaissance to start about 1400. We have to understand that cultural movements are liquid, they're fluid, they do not confine themselves to a single specific date. 
such as the Renaissance starts in 1400. It's a little uh, cartoonish to say something like that. We have to look at factors in and around major cultural movements that caused essential shifts in the line of human thought. Because that's what happens in the Renaissance, right? Uh, culture and people begin to think differently, act differently, perform, and more importantly, create differently. So the word Renaissance itself that we use in English is a French word that means rebirth. Um, in, in Italy, or in Italian, it would be called a rinascimento. But rebirth of what? What is being reborn? If we want to look at this just in a very simplistic way, the Renaissance represents the rebirth of classical antiquity. What is classical antiquity and what, it, what, what are we referring to when we talk about that as being reborn? Um, that is Greek and Roman culture from before the Middle Ages. Okay, That is what is being reborn. We're going to talk in detail how that's being reborn, why that's being reborn. But the, the issue is it happens on a lot of different levels in a lot of different areas. So we have to get to them one by one, little by little, one step at a time. We can start roughly in the 1300s, where there's a lot of cultural moments happening that contribute to what we classify as a proto-Renaissance or a, a pre-Renaissance, the types of thinkers, writers, and artists who contributed to the, the groundwork of thought and expression that would become known uh, to us today, of course, as the Renaissance. Um, we can start with who are typically referred to in Italy as the Tre Corone, the three crowned writers of the, of the 1300s, the Trecento, you would call it, um, Dante, Petrarch, and Boccaccio. They're doing something that is going to change how culture is interpreted. We can start with Dante, who is among the most famous who's for his Divine Comedy, which he wrote in vernacular Italian, Florentine dialect. At the time, it would be most common to write in the, the period's Latin, right? But he's writing in the vernacular language so that his work is accessible to everyone as a form of high literature. Dante changed how writers after him would pursue literature just simply, not, not only by, by simply writing in the vernacular, but also creating uh, a, a masterwork of poetry in the vernacular language to show its capacity as a high literary language. Um, Petrarch was important because he would follow this, this model in his Canzoniere, where he'd write actually as a, a he, he would call it a, a poetic game for himself to try to write in vernacular language because he was well-schooled in Latin. Um, but Petrarch was the type of, of Latin writer who heavily emphasized the use of classical Latin, the revival of classical Latin over the medieval contemporary Latin that he was accustomed to. This is what we were talking about when we were talking about rebirth of classical antiquity. It starts here with Petrarch, uh, heavily advocating for the use of classical Latin. Even in his canzoniere that he wrote in vernacular, um, he did all of his side notes in classical Latin. He was his standard of writing that his student Boccaccio would pick up on when he writes the very famous Decameron. 
So between Dante's uh, Divine Comedy, Petrarch's Canzoniere and his writings in, in classical Latin, and Boccaccio's Decameron in, in the vernacular, you now have a new developing literature that focuses on classical language and vernacular language. This is important because movements gain momentum when more people have access to the material. So, in their own time, Dante, Boccaccio, and Petrarch were famous, well-known for, for their literature. Now, Dante, of course, is famously exiled. Um, he was a, a politician in Florence. All of this is really happening uh, in Tuscany, even though Petrarch makes his way around um, Europe quite extensively. Now, these types of innovations, of course, are not confined to literature. In the same period, the 1300s, you have the painter Giotto, Giotto, whatever you want to call him, um, who wanted to refine the naturalism that you would find in paintings of the period. You see, the Middle Ages is not particularly concerned with neither naturalism nor idealism in its forms and figures. But Giotto, in reference to classical materials, right, we had to think the Greeks and Romans were particularly occupied with naturalistic and either uh, in either naturalistic or idealistic depiction. What I mean by naturalistic is that figures, plants, animals, architecture, landscape, everything looks to emulate the natural world around them. So we're either going to have naturalism um, or how real something looks, or you're going to have idealism, this gr Greek concept of idealism, such as your your demigods, your heroic figures that are ideal figures, ideal beauty, ideal musculature, ideal anatomy. That's idealism. And sometimes you're going to find combinations of idealism and uh, naturalism when the Renaissance seeks to emulate classical culture, right? But um, Giotto is more concerned with naturalism because art movements in the Middle Ages had so consistently uh, ignored for their own purposes, right? Medieval art is practical. It is uh, a craft, a job, like building, right? It's not necessarily art for art's sake that we understand today or that develops in the Renaissance to a certain degree. So Giotto is the painter that comes around and is going to try to set an example for the next generation of painters on how to express figures in a naturalistic way. Um, and he does this and is known as either the first Renaissance artist, first Renaissance painter, or um, as a proto-Renaissance painter, one of the artists who set the groundwork, the foundations for, for future painters that are known to us such as Masaccio or Botticelli or Michelangelo, any of your Renaissance painters that we're going to briefly touch on today. I'd like to stress that Giotto himself didn't actually achieve what we would consider to be naturalistic figures, but what he did was move away from the medieval standard. We can imagine um, a fresco that is that is painting into a wet plaster so that the, the painting is kind of permanently a part of the wall, we can imagine medieval frescoes where figures just kind of float above the air, have this um, 
gold in background. Their faces are quite bland or plain or flat. Their their figures have no no three dimensional qualities, um, and their particularly drapery is is a way to look at developments of naturalism. How does the drapery fall? Right, Giotto pl- plants his figures firmly on the ground, approximates anatomy in a more understandable way, adds expression, adds light and shade, the development of a technique called chiaroscuro, right, where you're um, actually painting from a light source and you use light and shade to create depth in your paintings. Giotto is one of the forerunners of this type of, of painting um, so that when people of the period of the 1300s look upon it, it's remarkably different um, and inspirational for them. So we need to keep that in mind that Giotto himself wasn't painting like, right, a Signorelli or like uh, who came after him, Mosaccio, right? He's painting in the, the first steps away from a type of flat. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Renaissance people. If you are enjoying the Italian Renaissance podcast, I have good news. We're now active on Patreon. You can show your love for the show by becoming a patron and get access to additional resources, information, and artworks. Better yet, those who join the Renaissance Master or Renaissance Patron tier will get access to at least one additional podcast episode each month. My goal is to ensure that the main podcast remains a free, accessible source for everyone. Become a patron today through the link in the show notes to support the continued production of new episodes and help build and maintain this community. The Italian Renaissance Shop is now also active on Etsy, linked in the show notes. Sport our logo or choose from a growing selection of Italian art-inspired designs. Discounts are offered to select Patreon tiers as well. Your support has my immortal gratitude. Now, enjoy the show. depiction of, of people. So with this, we can understand that Dante, Boccaccio, and Petrarch serve to be the emblem figures of proto-Renaissance literature, and that Giotto is the forerunner of Renaissance painting. These would be your proto-Renaissance figures, and it's just a few of them. Uh, there are a lot more people that contributed to this movement, but the result is the next kind of important term in understanding what the Renaissance is and was is called humanism, Renaissance humanism, right? So what this is is essentially the decentering of the religious attitudes of the Middle Ages in Italy and recentering thought and ingenuity on human beauty, achievement, and experience. That is not to say that people of the Renaissance were atheistic at all. In fact, they weren't. They looked to reconcile their experiences uh, on earth with what they considered to be divinity, right? The continuing continuing religious attitudes that, um, that even persist into our modern era. We see that in Giotto, where it's not enough to just depict the saints 
with their symbols, with their with their means to identify them, but rather to try to have them emulate the natural world, human ingenuity in developing art, right? In developing style and developing technique. The idea was to enhance human ability and to enhance human lives, to enrich it with beauty, with thought, with philosophy. This was what was happening, particularly in Florence, where the ruling Medici in the 1400s under Cosimo de' Medici pursued extreme patronage of art and of literature and of book collecting and of translating all the way to the foundation of what is known as the Neoplatonic Academy, the, the, an academy which focused on reinterpreting Plato from ancient Greek texts. I think this is a good moment to, to look into the, the impact of the Medici on the Renaissance period and how the influx of Greek texts changed how everyone within intellectual circles was thinking. One of the major moments in this is the Council of Florence Ferrara, right? So we essentially have the Ottomans approaching Constantinople, trying to take it over what they eventually would, right, and rename it uh, Istanbul. We all know this story. But the emperor of the Byzantine Empire of Constantinople decides for the first time to, uh, in a long time, to try to reconcile the Eastern and West churches in order to repel the advancing Ottoman forces. So the Byzantine emperor, this great Greek fable to the, the minds of the Florentines who are um, idolizing and, 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 and fetishizing almost Greek culture as they imagine it, get to see the Greek emperor, which they don't necessarily know how to correlate it to classical antiquity. It's a bit of a messy situation in terms of our understanding. But in comes John Paleologus VIII, emperor of, of the Byzantine Empire into Florence, hosted by, by the Medici family. And this makes artists go wild to actually behold a Greek emperor for their, their, for, for their muse, for their creation. Okay, but the reconciliation of the church doesn't actually work. Constantinople falls, the Byzantine Empire collapses in 1453, and alas, all of the scholars who had visited Florence for the Council of Florence, right, we're talking about 10 to 12 years before, maybe more depending on when they arrived because the council was from 1431 to 1449. These scholars with their home invaded and conquered say, okay, where to now? And they go back to Florence with all of their books. Now, while under Cosimo de' Medici, Florence saw the likes of Donatello or Fra Filippo Lippi, right? Or the architect Michelozzo, who are all the, the, the artists and patrons of, um, of Cosimo de' Medici, right? But his grandson is, is Lorenzo de' Medici, Lorenzo il Magnifico, Lorenzo the Magnificent, who would further launch this Neoplatonic concept into the fabric of the society in which he in part governed. We have to keep in mind Florence and most of northern Italy at this time was a collection of city-states or even um, 
communes that were led by republics, right? So these are not your feudal societies. These are not led by kings, right? However, wealthy families like the Medici could obtain power with their wealth, you know, almost like um, capitalist America, but that is neither here nor there in this talk, right? So with the arrival of Lorenzo, which comes after the return of the Greek scholars, we have the most, probably the most famous artist, our bread, out of this Neoplatonic school or within the line of Neoplatonic thought or indirect contrast to Neoplatonic thought, right? So Michelangelo, Neoplatonist uh, artist. Leonardo da Vinci comes in contrast to Neoplatonism. Botticelli, the famous birth of Venus, the famous Mars uh, and Venus. Uh, Venus and Mars, I think, is the title, excuse me, that's in the National Gallery of London. Uh, Botticelli is a Neoplatonic thinker until later in his life where he devotes himself more to a religious outlook. And a lot of them are schooled by... Um, there's one notable Neoplatonist I'd like to refer to, Marsilio Ficino. Ficino, right? Ficino, who studied directly under uh, John Ag Agriopoulos. I don't know how to say that name. It's a it's a Greek name now from one of, one of the scholars who, who um, returned from Constantinople. And what Ficino recognized, and I think this is important because when we talk about uh, historicization. Did we kind of impose the Renaissance concept onto this period? Well, Ficino and a lot of thinkers like him, likewise, recognize their period as an age of advanced uh, society, I suppose. So I would like to read for you from an English translation of Marsilio Ficino in understanding how he understood his position and his line of thought within his own contemporary context and how he references antiquity in his writings about his own period. I'm going to start here. It's called The Golden Age in Florence. He says to Paul of Middleburg, what the poets once sang of the four ages, lead, iron, silver, and gold, our Plato in the Republic transferred to the four talents of men, assigning to some talents a certain leaden quality implanted in them by nature, to others iron, to others silver, silver, excuse me, and to still others gold. If then we are to call any age golden, it is beyond doubt that age which brings forth golden talents in different places, right? Meaning it is his period, beyond doubt, the new golden age referred to by Plato in his Republic. I'm going to continue reading this. That such is true of this our age, he who wishes to consider the illustrious discoveries of this century will hardly doubt. For this century, like a golden age, has restored to light the liberal arts, which were almost extinct. Grammar, poetry, rhetoric, painting, sculpture, architecture, music, the ancient singing of songs to the Orphic lyre, and all this in Florence, achieving what had been honored among the ancients, but almost forgotten since. Okay, that's Ficino 
completely likening his time, his experience, and that of his contemporaries to a revival of the Golden Age spoken about by Plato in antiquity. This is Renaissance, rebirth, okay? Let's not forget that, guys, guys and gals and people, okay? Ficino defines the Renaissance in his period as we also define it today. What I'd like to end on, because, of course, this is just a discussion of what is the Renaissance? How is the Renaissance, right? Why is the Renaissance? Maybe not why. There's rarely ever whys, right? Can't, can't answer that always with history. But um, just a brief glazing over some of the key uh, figures of the Renaissance that you listeners, if you are novice to the field, may know or to put some names out there that you may not know. Um, as far as writers are concerned, there's Niccolo Machiavelli, the famous author of The Prince, also um, a, a, a pretty comical playwright. I do recommend, um, if you guys maybe find on YouTube, something called The Mandragola, uh, in English, The Mandrake Root. If you want to look into the types of satire and criticism that contemporary playwrights were doing um, in order to critique their societies, right? Machiavelli is doing this. Um, we've already spoken about Marsilio Ficino, the great Neoplatonist, educator and author, um, and translator, right, who translated all of Plato's work into Latin. Um, Baldassare Castiglione, the book of the courtier, he wrote the manual on how to, uh, how one should express themselves in court. And then you have the architects like Filippo Brunelleschi, who designed the dome in Florence, um, Michelozzo, who designed many a palace throughout Florence, um, in addition to the Medici Palace, which we briefly touched on, right? Or um, another essential name is Alberti, um, who developed um, perspective. You know, how to depict perspective in addition to, uh, to, to treatises on architecture, right? And then there are, of course, the, the, the artists, the painters, the sculptors, right? Michelangelo, of course, fancied himself more a sculptor, but he's mo most known for his paintings, more or less. <laughs> Michelangelo, who did the David, the Sistine Chapel, the Pietà. My fav fav favorite Michelangelo work is actually the Bacchus. So it's not his most well-known work. So if you're listening to this and you, th you know Michelangelo, look up his Bacchus and enjoy it. It's quite remarkable. In fact, I, I might even t do, a, do an episode on the Bacchus. I have a lot to say about it. You have other sculptures like Donatello or Verrocchio, the predecessor to Leonardo da Vinci, who taught him, taught him how to paint. Um, and then, of course, you have the painters, Michelangelo among them, Botticelli we talked about, Leonardo da Vinci we briefly talked about and may talk about in more detail later. Uh, I'm particularly fond of Luca Signorelli, um, really remarkable artist. Uh, Fra Filippo Lippi and his son Filippino Lippi, which have their own extremely fun story to, to look at in relationship to their paintings. And just a massive plethora of other exceptional artists, thinkers, writers, architects, sculptors. There's so much that we can discuss in a podcast like this. 
So I'd very much like it if this inspires you to reach out to me about what you want to know more about and what you want to hear about. Um, I am a particularly art history driven, but I'm happy to dive into literature and ha more than happy to dive into the poetry, especially that of Lorenzo the Magnificent, who was a great poet in his own right, or his comrade Poliziano, Politian, whatever we want to call him, who is among my favorite writers of the period. So moving forward, I think what I'd like to do is understanding that this was a general sweep, right? Um, it's really, really difficult to to pack everything into a 30-minute episode of what the Renaissance is. It's really difficult. It's a lot of information. It's probably overwhelming, and it's probably um, more than, than can be digested. So what I hope to do in the next episode is to pick one very particular topic and spend roughly a 30 minutes or more discussing it in all of its acute detail so that we can really, really tackle individual issues rather than this more survey general overview that, that we did today. Lastly, I'm just going to recap what we said so that we can leave on a good note of, of maybe some clarity, right? How do we answer briefly, what is the Renaissance? It's the period of rebirth. It is the revival of cultural fads from classical antiquity as they were perceived in the period. Not all of them were exactly accurate, right? This piggybacks off of proto-Renaissance movements of uh, Petrarch, who wants to uh, emulate the status of classical Latin. Dante, who prefers to express um, the valor of the vernacular language. Or Giotto, who wants to move away from a static depiction of figures and into a more naturalistic uh, mode of painting. The fall of Constantinople pushes all of the Greek scholars which in the, on the Italian peninsula were being, were being adored from afar, and their teachings get brought directly to painters, writers, and intellects of Florence and other parts of Italy, okay, northern Italy in particular. The classical Greek uh, schooling therefore produces a new type of art, literature, poetry that we know today as the Renaissance based on new lines of thought, uh, references to Plato and other classical Greek philosophers, naturalism, idealism, attention to detail, human ingenuity, right? The advancement of human thought and the prosper of, uh, of the human intellect. Okay, that is Renaissance. Of course, the Renaissance will eventually move from Florence to Rome once the papacy gets wind of this cultural fad, and that is when you get um, the Roman Renaissance and eventually the conquest of France of Northern Italy will spread the, the Renaissance line of thought into France and other parts of Europe. I thank you all for listening. If there's anybody listening, um, I had a lot of fun trying this and I definitely am excited to get into the next episode as soon as I'm as I'm able. I hope this was helpful, enlightening and fun. Thanks for listening.